0: I wrote a story some years ago about groundwater depletion in Arizona, and that story came out of reading uh, a, st- a climate change statistic that was basically saying X number of groundwater wells are going dry in this rural area of Arizona.
1: Fake news. <laughs>
2: is up skaters welcome back to vent city your favorite or at least top five skate podcasts on the internet Uh, my name is kyle beachy and today we have a very special program perhaps even more special than every other program we've had Um, we have myself reporting from chicago illinois we have ryan lay the nali lama um reporting (laughs) from tempe arizona um, home of outrageous real estate inflation We have Ted Schmitz um, in really the home of real estate inflation, Manhattan, Nah, the the island itself. And then today, making things special, um, is our guest, Noah Gallagher-Shannon, aka Noah Shannon, um, skater, journalist, recent winner for Science Reporting In-Depth, 5,000 words or longer from the... Academy for the Advancement of American Sciences, uh, and Globetrotter, Instagrammer. Noah, welcome to have you.
3: Thanks, it's Glad to be here. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, we, uh, we're operating on a kind of um, faith-based program today, and that faith is that your knowledge about climate change is going to prove useful in our general ignorance slash disbelief since ted schmitz is here in climate change and uh resident that, <laughs> re, resident skeptic <laughs> and that will find a way to overlap uh your your experiences and your knowledge um with um skateboarding somehow but more than anything just kind of uh, get out here on the table ways to talk about this um very real thing that is pressing down on us. How are you today? You are You are, in fact jet lagged. You have been on a trip.
0: Yeah, I'm uh, a little jet lagged. I got back from South Africa uh, two days ago. I'd actually been away for um, a little over two months, I think. Um, I was first in Tanzania for a month and then in South Africa for a month. And that trip actually was right on the tail end of going to uruguay for a couple of weeks so all told i've been kind of uh flying around the world for three months now um but now i'm back in my basement office in fort collins and trying to readjust to life maybe get out and skate in the next few days if the snow starts to melt it is like 60 degrees here though there's a bunch of snow on the ground so
2: and those were reporting trips yeah
0: yeah so i went to um Uruguay for a magazine story I'm working on. And then um, Africa was part of a book that I've been reporting for about a year. So the book is about really the first group of African distance runners who came to the United States in the early 1970s. Basically, this coach at the University of Texas, El Paso, couldn't get American kids to go to school in El Paso for a number of reasons. One of which uh, the fact that it's El Paso. Um, And (laughs) he began to look (laughs) no shots to El Paso. I love El Paso. Um, But he began to look overseas uh, to try to see if he could recruit athletes. And this was right at the time that some countries in East Africa had gotten their independence, Kenya and Tanzania, um, prominent among them. And he saw Kip Kino win the gold medal at the 1968 games, which to many people is the kind of moment that African distance running burst on the scene. Um, And he thought to himself, why don't I get some of those guys? Um, Hmm. So he began to recruit overseas um, and, and bring in this kind of incredible constellation of Personalities from all over Eastern and Southern Africa. And they turned into the greatest team in college track and field of the 1970s, and probably one of the greatest teams in college athletics, period. Hmm. And in short order, um, there was a lot of backlash to them being there. Um, This kind of quote unquote foreign question began to dominate op ed pages and Uh, The booths at track meets, um, fans and coaches were pretty angry that there were these Black men from Africa who were taking American scholarships. And so these men had come from, you know, oftentimes pretty poor, pretty rural places, and then were plunked down in El Paso, Texas, and then uh, pretty quickly became Famous distance runners, and then pretty quickly after that became kind of pariahs in the sport, um, at least from an American point of view. So I went to Tanzania to spend time with one of the main subjects of the book, um, a man named Nayambui Mujaya, who won dozens of not dozens, but you know, 15, 16, 17 national titles when he was in college, probably one of the greatest college athletes of all time, also with the silver medalist in the 1980 Olympics in the 5000. And we met and and did a kind of grand road trip around his home country. He wanted to show me the village he grew up in, which is on the island of Ukarewe in the middle of uh, Lake Victoria. So we went there and drove to see other family wanted to show me the places that he'd first begin to run first begin uh, began to um, kind of dream about uh, becoming a distance runner of some uh, national and international renown um, so it was an incredible trip um, a lot of like 11 hour bus rides over impossible roads <laughs> <laughs> and kind of uh, rough stays in rural places but um, really beautiful country I mean one of the crazy things is, um, there's there was really only one highway to get from two of the cities we were going between and it just happened to run through the Serengeti National Park. So I ended up getting a cheap safari riding on a you know $4 coach bus um, over dirt roads and looking at giraffes and elephants and uh, herds of zebra. So just an incredible experience. I mean, I'm still kind of processing it because I just yeah. flew home. Um, and then I went to South Africa for basically... Um, the same thing. Another one of the characters at the heart of the book, um, is a guy named Matthews Matsuara right. um, who grew up in the black township of Soweto, um, and eventually also went to the university of Texas, El Paso and became a national champion. And, um, you know, his story is a lot about, um, the deprivations of that, that black people suffered under apartheid and the kind of difficulty of him trying to get abroad and uh, at the time during the sports boycott when um, South African runners couldn't run internationally. And um, he basically couldn't get out of the country for a long time because they uh, denied him citizenship and wouldn't grant him a passport to leave. So it became something of a small international incident for this college to get him Hmm. abroad, but they eventually did. Hmm. Um, And Matthews is, dead he was murdered in 2001 but i spent a lot of time with his family there and um and digging into his past and what he went through and um his time at the university of texas el paso and then um i flew to cape town to go on vacation
2: hell yeah (laughs) because because I needed to
3: go on vacation.
0: And um, my and you'd wife, had, Katie, your, you'd
2: had your board for two months and you hadn't used it. So you thought you'd go to Cape Town and skate.
0: Yeah, it was getting super dusty. And <laughs> um, no, we flew to Cape Town and just like relaxed and went to awesome restaurants and yeah. um, sat on the beach and looked at all the awesome wildlife there. And um, actually, you know, I saw, didn't see a lot of skaters in that whole month. I saw two Two kids carrying boards in Soweto when I was there skating a little bit. Um, Those were the only skaters I saw in Joburg. And then Cape Town, real, real longboardy city, real (laughs) lots of lots of longboard vibes in Hmm. Cape Town. In fact, like went by a skate shop that was, I think, longboard exclusive. So rare tells you what you need to know.
2: Yeah. The way I came to know you and I think the way that a lot of people I know came to know you is by way of uh, another like very deep journalistic dive that you did um, into a scene a little closer to my own personal interest than running because I find running to be a grotesque use of the human body, Um, (laughs) which, which, um, which is called Atlanta Hellride. Um, no relation, technically, um, to Thrasher magazine. But at the core of this piece, um, cease and desist. <laughs> this
1: this yeah, piece we, of
0: journalism, the Oxford American, never got a cease
2: and desist. So we're going to keep <laughs> rolling with
1: it. It's still in the mail. San Francisco takes a while for uh, for hard copies to get out.
0: To get all the way to Little Rock, Arkansas, yeah. yeah.
2: You wrote about Grant Taylor and and in writing about Grant Taylor, you got down there and down dirty. And, and as as a writer who um is like particularly non-journalistic, um
0: mm-hmm.
2: I have a lot of um, you know, the the idea of spending two months on assignment or doing research or you know, as you said, covering, right? Like you spoke of your travels as as covering this story whereas what I would say where I had to do that is like I went to Africa for 2 months and while I was there I did a little writing or whatever um <laughs> you you are you are a reporter in a way that um I I don't totally understand because it's never been part of my experience um you so yeah. when you when you wrote of grant taylor you embedded yourself among the Atlanta scene and grant and um, everyone down there, can you can you tell us a little bit about what that was like as a skater to be suddenly in and among these people as a journalist?
0: Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I guess it's funny that I use covering in that way. It's, I guess, really the only way that I know how to write things. I mean, even with a, a piece like Atlanta Hellride Ride about Grant, I mean, I guess I could have done that in a kind of essayistic way, looking at his video parts or looking at um, his career. But um, that's just how I like to do things. I like to go and meet people and experience things and kind of get it um, straight from the source and try to embed myself as much as possible in um, what people are doing, how they think, you know, who their family is, um, what they do day to day. I mean, that's what I was doing in Tanzania. It's what um, I try to do with a lot of my pieces, just because I get interested in like the little details. I get interested in, um, I mean, just their day-to-day. I mean, Grant was great to be around because um, on the one hand, he's just a skater I've always loved to watch and have admired. Um, but then also just to see how much he's, skating every day how much he's thinking about skating how much his life just kind of revolves around it is you know uh pretty foreign for me actually as someone who grew up skating and loved skateboarding but um as I get deeper into my 30s don't necessarily get to do it every day or get to orient my life around it um so that piece I mean the way it originated was um I was working with an editor at the Oxford American and just kind of um tossing ideas around and i was interested in grant because skateboarding is such a kind of california phenomenon and still kind of a california phenomenon despite um it being you know um the late 21st century um and grant had at that point stayed in atlanta his whole career um around friends and family and around his dad who is a pro skater and now runs a shop there Um, and the Oxford American is a magazine dedicated to the American South. And so it just seemed like a, a cool opportunity to go and uh, skate around with somebody um, I thought was rad for a long time. So yeah. uh, <laughs> one funny thing about that piece is that I hadn't done any skate reporting or skate writing at that point. And so I was both kind of intimidated by it because skating was this thing I'd done Um, privately and with my friends and it wasn't necessarily kind of part of my career or part of my writerly identity, I guess. Um, And you hate to like, you know, um, get the homies upset by something you write about skating or something. The skating world can be, you know, pretty critical. Um, And (laughs) on the other hand, I was like, yeah, too. i really want to like go and skate with grant with grant fucking taylor for a weekend and just be like totally embarrassed as i'm you know like pumping or pumping around a bowl that he's doing head high errors out of or something
3: yeah. i gotta um, know what was the what was the process like in asking grant about uh, uh the the project that you're working on because there's probably no way that he knew what the publication was right
0: no and this, this is what i'm kind of getting around to is that um because I hadn't like done anything in skate media, I wasn't really prepared for how kind of like non-media trained a lot of skaters are though. They're ostensibly pro athletes and much of their life revolves around media. Like the idea that I was a journalist and that I might be wanting to spend some time with him. And like that, the piece that I was writing would go through fact checking, like all of that stuff seemed kind of like super foreign to him. And the other Maybe funnier part about that is that he was super hard to get a hold of in a way that like other like famous people or uh, government officials or um, other people are not. I was like, it took me it took me months, dude, to figure out how to get a hold of him and to get someone to kind of help me do it. (laughs) and that was just kind of a funny process because it wasn't like he was insulated or anything. It was just kind of like, you could tell people were like, what's this magazine? Like, what the fuck is this? Like, why would we? uh, Yeah, I guess like, I don't know. We'll see if Grant like returns your phone call or whatever. Like, and that just seemed to be kind of the, um, I don't know. That's, that seems to be kind of his attitude. Like he hangs around with his close friends and close family and it seems like it's kind of hard to, um, get in that inner circle a little bit but when we eventually did um you know I didn't quite know what to expect from Grant because you know he's definitely got that kind of um hell ride reputation and uh but it was just super sweet and friendly and I think the first time we talked we talked on the phone for like two hours and Mm -hmm. um really forthcoming and he's just kind of like yeah like get down here like whatever like
3: Come through, call me, like we'll grill out, we'll skate, whatever.
0: (laughs) It's funny (laughs) because it's funny because for me, like, you know, oftentimes when I'm doing a story, I can get kind of type A about, like, okay, well, this is the schedule, you know, I'm going to fly down there. I need to know, like, what days we're meeting, like, when we have scheduled interviews, what we might do in terms of scenery for the piece, you know, are we going to Um, we're gonna go to the pipe
3: and the 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 diy that you did the ollie yeah are are you gonna recreate the ollie photo for me we've got a fact checker (laughs) on that some people say you're three four feet high but actually i checked it's two and a half feet grant that's not yeah are you
0: are you gonna take me to that like you know empty water park um that you barged into or whatever um and but he was just like totally resistant to that he was kind of like, well, I'm going to South America, like these times, blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't know. just like come through and we'll meet up. So eventually I just had to like bite the bullet and buy a ticket and like get down there for the weekend and be like, hey, so I'm around. And, and did you skate? You could tell. That, yeah, I skated a little bit. Um, that was the other thing is that I can't remember exactly what month I went down there it may have been like early spring and I was living in Brooklyn at the time and I hadn't been skating a lot because it was still super snowy. And I remember like trying to like, like crash some skate fitness or something over the course of a couple of days, just because I hadn't (laughs) been on the board. And I was like, Oh no, I'm going to like go down there and all the homies are going to be watching and Grant Taylor's going to be watching. Um, so I remember like, um, I don't know if I was like shoveling the street or something. I was just trying to get a little skating in before I went down there. We,
3: we need like um, the, the skate fitness insanity workout. You just do <laughs> a, week, a week in your living room when you've been living in a yeah. uh, East Coast winter, and you you're good to go on a, a trip trip down south.
0: Yeah, full Rocky montage. And yeah, so I did skate. I skated. You know, his dad has a pretty gnarly bowl kind of DIY setup. In the backyard that you've obviously seen in countless videos and um, photos, that's way harder to skate than it looks.
3: Like including the super, the,
0: the, wall, super the double
2: corner wall ride, the wall ride, then the wall ride on the other corner. Double
0: double corner wall ride. The yes. um, the window that's on the garage wall that he grinds over is just like super tight, and there's no room on that. Like mm-hmm. it's impossible when you see it up close. Like the roll in from the house down into the bowl is actually super steep. So you're coming into the thing, super hot. <laughs> um, and uh, we skated uh, the, a place that they call Pebble Beach, which is like a little DIY that's there. They call it Pebble yeah. Beach because it's just like an empty lot full of death pebbles um, and some objects. And we skated that, that super famous plaza that's downtown that has the kind of sloped um, ledges.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and like we went on a a sort of full mission because as as fate would have it the like six stair um dudes were there filming a love letters with jeff grosso so i didn't know any of this and when i like showed up jeff grosso was like in the parking lot smoking cigarettes in a um a collar because he'd like recently gotten neck surgery or something um so I just kind of showed up and all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, fucking Jeff Grosso is here and all of these other guys are he's, here like, he's great, like, cool, man.
3: I'm a reporter too. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, it's actually sick because he like I you know, I don't know if any of those guys knew on some level that I was a reporter, or they kind of like did and then just kind of brushed it off and were like, Yeah, whatever, like he's just right. another dude in the van, you know? Right. Um and I actually ended up getting to hang out with grosso a lot which was cool because he obviously wasn't skating obviously wasn't supposed to be like you know smoking in a in a neck collar post-surgery or anything and like had a twinkle in his eye about everything um but we ended up getting to just like stand around and shoot the shit and watch grant skate because basically all jeff wanted to do was just like let's go watch jeff skate or let's go watch grant skate right and kept looking at me like astonished like wouldn't it be nice dude (laughs) every time (laughs) every time grant would do something too super gnarly um because because grant would also like you know we were there with the with filmers with um people taking photos like there was a whole kind of mission to everything we would do um and grant would still just like go sneak off and go skate something um when no one was around like at one point no one knew where grant was and we like went around the corner and he was like like trying five O's down like a 12 stair rail or something just by himself. <laughs> he was like, Oh shit. Okay. Holy shit,
3: that's amazing. <laughs> he's just so out sad. skating.
0: That's so And then sad. as soon as everyone comes around the corner and sets up, he's like, I'm fucking over it and goes right. and skate something else, you know? Mm. Um, and that was what I heard from so many of the people around him. They were just like, dude, all the best grant stuff isn't on video. Right. It's not on. Um, it hasn't, there hasn't <laughs> been photos of it. Cause um he just totally embraces that mentality of like, who cares?
1: Now I'm that's the stranger skate. clause of his contract. When you get on anti-hero, <laughs> Julian makes you, <laughs> you say, you can't care anymore. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Here's what I know of your kind of skate origins. You, as a young young buck, were given flips sorry. And for a long time, it was the only video you thought was in existence. And so you modeled your entire career after notable park hero, Mark Appleyard. True. I
0: knew that you, I knew that you were going to be bitter about <laughs> Mark Appleyard at some point, but
2: I love Mark Appleyard. I think he's one of the first great park skaters in the history of skates, street skating.
0: <laughs> I'm not going to stand for this. Um, <laughs> yeah,
2: I was definitely, I was
0: definitely into Mark Appleyard when I started coming up. thought he was great. Loved the photosynthesis part, loved, uh, the early flip stuff. It's really too bad when he's kind of like morphed into at this point there's sort of like um mahalo orange, yeah like a like mahalo dude crossed with like an orange county um uh weightlifter guy or something like i don't know exactly what the vibe is anymore there's like maybe a little bit of alt-right something going on
3: <laughs> um
1: no it's I just that exactly he, can fill out he, he can fill out a tank top <laughs> <No>.
3: <laughs> still still surprisingly precise on his on his board though right yeah every time i see idea. a clip of him it's not just like because a lot of older skaters that that haven't been skating a whole lot like they have power you can see but he is like he's got that precision he can do like a three-foot yeah. nose slide or a nollie big spin backtail. <laughs> oh yeah he can <laughs> still do the nollie flip <laughs> no problem <laughs> that's,
0: that's it <laughs> yeah yeah there was that really sad. I mean, the beginning of the downfall was probably when the nolly big spin and all the variations started coming in and you were like, Oh no, I don't know why he's fixated on this.
3: <laughs> yeah. Every, every, yeah. So many skaters are faced with that dilemma. Do I do, gonna the, go back uh, on mute. <laughs> yeah. Do I do the nolly big spin to uh, transition trick and we find 40 ditches this year and, and build out my whole interview.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, th-
3: those of us who have, Kind of
2: signature tricks, Ryan. I don't know if you know this. It's it's kind of an ethical (laughs) ethical dilemma for us. Kyle, what's your what's your signature trick? Ryan? Kyle.
3: (laughs) You (laughs) You don't remember Kyle? I thought you were gonna answer the question. I was that's the front shell background, baby. There we go. Yeah, front shove background.
2: Jesus, man. Front shove background. Okay. We'll fix that in post, surely. (laughs) It we'll, like I, yeah, this I the mark.
0: take away you gotta take away ryan's hesitation there
2: <laughs> you know kyle skates right ryan he wrote
1: the ryan and i it. just
2: ryan and i just had a lovely uh lovely visit together i was actually just in tempe and had an exceptional time uh doing you some guys just real- skate the wedge for days and days <laughs> i skated the wedge for a, an, an hour the flat part That's with sick. the three little rails over there four little rails
1: um as but long, but long mainly, as you popped off I the used- bank you basically cleared it because that's what we're doing now yeah i used to go there a lot when you know i have a i have a strong
0: arizona connection because my dad grew up in phoenix and most of my extended family still lives in phoenix my 93 year old grandfather who i see a lot still lives in phoenix so i'm down there a lot skated that one i've skated there's one off of um is it bell road or i'm gonna forget now where
1: there's a park um, the pretty other- close to Bell. That's PV Park. It's got a uh, okay. big channel that Bobby Puglio ollied in a static two-part.
2: <laughs> famous famous park have- skater. Famous park yeah. skater. Speaking of. <laughs> we skated <laughs> that park. That park is fucking miserable, if I may. It is. Um, yeah. it's, it's one of the worst. Truly, truly a bad park. Yeah. It's got a lot of
1: flat bottom, right? <laughs> That's the Arizona special. The same park. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're all kind the great of is, big bowls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but
0: my grandfather's house, like right around the corner from it, he had a bunch of cool ditches and stuff. So mm-hmm. I used to skate
1: there a lot whenever I visited him. Yes, the ditches are cool. Very, uh, very aesthetically exciting on the footage too.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, well, well, look, the kind of overarching... Aside from Appleyard, which is, you know, any occasion to talk about Appleyard is a, is a good occasion. Um, the the sort of real kind of thrust of um, the invite to have you on to the esteemed Vent City podcast uh, was to talk about um, a subject that you've been covering and, and have been um, recognized for the quality of your coverage uh, of climate change, which is you know um, uh, among the topics we can get into on any given day um s- s- surely in the top three most depressing um but also easily among the most uh sort of um opaque and difficult for a lot of folks to kind of understand it's it, it lurks in the way that a lot of um a lot of us aren't totally comfortable uh trying to face trying to get a look at yeah um, but you have done um in, in the manner, as a kind of callback to what we were saying earlier about your coverage, um, you have kind of gotten uh, your hands kind of into the muck to look at some of the practical, um, let's say, expressions of our ongoing climate disaster and global warming. And um, notably among them, or notable among them, is the work that you did in Argentina, tracking some truly like mysterious and, frankly, Pretty fucked up, um, violent storms down there, and and I mm-hmm. wonder if, as a way to kind of get into talking about climate change, if you might give us the sort of you know, summary version of what what that story was, um, what you discovered, um, and what what we might then kind of jump off from that and take away from that experience was.
0: Yeah, so that that story came about just because I saw a mention. In a newsletter, it was basically a press release saying that um, an international team of scientists, scientists from NASA, some scientists from National Science Foundation, from Brazil, from Argentina, from Europe, were all going down to this one remote area of northern Argentina around the city of Córdoba, um, where apparently the largest and most violent thunderstorms in the world formed. And there wasn't a ton of data at this point on these storms. Um, you know, there's not a lot of great um, weather instrumentation in um, rural Latin America, as there is not in many parts of the world. I mean, I think one thing we take for granted in the United States is that when we look at the weather app on our phone or we look at hurricane warnings or anything else, we can sort of uh, know that they're going to be fairly accurate and pretty reliable. But when you do it in most other countries, you know, it's based only on a few observations or a few instruments. And so there's still a lot of variability and a lot of blank spots. Um, And it's a pretty remote area. It's not unlike the American Great Plains. It's sort of in the Pampas, which is this vast grassland area in South America. And so these are a lot of, like, little farm towns um, scattered about, you know, um, oftentimes connected with dirt roads, not a lot of cell coverage, not a lot of Internet coverage. So that's all to say that these storms were still kind of a a mystery, at least to um, American scientists and to European scientists. Um, There'd been some work done on them in South America, but um, there wasn't a lot. So just the kind of mystery of that was super intriguing to me like oh here are these super violent wild mm-hmm. storms that are forming in this area and even scientists dedicating their lives to this don't know a ton about them um you know and a lot of the early work done on them was done via satellites and a lot of the scientists just kind of didn't know what to make of this satellite data because the storms are so big they were so violent the hail was you know grapefruit size um it just seemed to kind of uh, defy a little bit of, um, the other metrics for storms that we have in the United States. Um, so I contacted them, was interested in it and got down there. And (laughs) when I contacted the scientists before I went down there, um, they were like, it's been incredible. We've had storms, you know, every few days we've collected all this incredible data and they're collecting the data by basically storm chasing in a way that's more similar to the movie Twister um, than they probably like to admit, which is basically, you know, you got to go out and you got to get instruments inside a storm. So you got to roughly figure out where a storm is going to form. And then you got to get out in the field and try to get in front of it and try to get radar trained on it and try to get instruments and weather balloons and stuff up inside of it so that you can map the interior of it and see how it looks and feels Um, because only after you do that, can you build out a model of how these things are going to form in the future? And so the guys were super optimistic. Yeah, we've seen all these storms. We've had such a great time. And then I got down there and um, it was sunny for 10 days, <laughs>
3: <laughs> which was, um,
0: you know, on the one hand was like, cool, I'm in South America. Um, I'm with these interesting folks. I can get a lot of interviews done. Um, but day after day of just kind of bright blue sky. We're sitting in the briefing every day and they're like yet another beautiful fucking day. Um, But luckily, you know, um, my editor, friend of the pod, Willie Staley at the New York times magazine was basically like, well, let's stay down there till we get one, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And luckily that turned into uh, maybe two or three days later, we ended up getting a storm. And so we basically gear up in these big kind of armored trucks that have deployable radar that can scanned in super high winds. Um, they get jacked up on hydraulic arms so that they can be more secure when the winds get over whatever, 150 miles an hour or something, um, whatever the speed at which, you know, bricks start to get torn from walls and you know, cars get lifted off the ground and the like. Um, And the people running that were all part of a team, sort of like the foremost team in the world that does storm chasing that works out of Boulder, Colorado. Um, This guy named Josh Worman, who basically invented a lot of the tech in these um, mobile radar units. Um, And these guys are, I mean, they'll just go out in the worst conditions, you know, go and chase tornadoes, get hit by tornadoes. I forget the exact number, but Josh and his team had been through 300 tornadoes or something, a bunch of hurricanes. I mean, they've been in the worst of the worst conditions and just had all these incredible stories. Um, Many of them sad because they turned deadly. Many of them, you know, a bit harrowing. Many of them just kind of surprising for the data that turned up, Um, so we went out and we went out into this storm several hours away from base camp. And um, that storm turned into, be, turned into kind of the, one of the largest sections in the piece that I ended up writing about, which is the process of what does it actually look, look like to go out and try to track and chase a storm? Um, and chasing a storm is almost kind of a misnomer because usually what you're doing is trying to stay in front of it. Because hmm. um, you're you're going out and trying to put a bunch of instruments in basically a kind of net so that the storm is gonna go through the net and all the instruments are gonna be able to pick up you know the storm's features, what it looks like, et cetera. Dor- Dorothy, and then you're trying Dorothy to-
3: Dorothy too, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, trying to get all the little flying balls up inside the storm or whatever. Um, and then you're basically just trying to stay at the front edge of the storm so that you're not getting you know, hit by the worst of the interior of it. Um, and you're just kind of marching slowly forward and um, staying in contact with all the other trucks. So it was, um, I remember we went out at maybe seven in the morning to get set because many of the storms end up bubbling up around two or 3 PM. And I don't think we got in until about that time the next day. So it's sort of 24 hour chase um, where you're kind of on the whole time trying to stay in front of the storm, trying to stay in contact with everybody, trying to keep everybody safe. And a lot of my job during that time is just try to record in real time, you know, what the scientists are talking about, what the storm is doing while also trying to, you know, um, keep myself and the photographer I was working with, Mitch DeBrowner, um, safe as much as possible
2: let me um jump in here No, with maybe what what's a kind of insultingly basic question um i'm happy to, <laughs> i'm happy to do that um mm-hmm. the 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 storms of this region are sort of legendary right and you know my my sort of my first exposure to to argentinian kind of super storms was in actually in a novel by cesar ira called an episode in the life of a landscape painter where a painter mm-hmm um you know it's it's set in the kind of it's set in the 19th century um but a kind of formative event in the plot of this novel is this sudden storm in the pompous uh where our hero is struck by lightning and it forever alters his perspective and it changes his artwork etc it's a, it's an incredibly <clears> beautiful book a short book back pocket book like 87 pages um which is just to say like i, I think there Maybe some of our listeners are aware that this is a region that um, is beset by these these sort of um, legendary storms. Was the project here for both the data collection and you actually being there as a journalist, was, was this born from the sense that there is something to learn about our current kind of predicament with climate change, or was this truly just like, we need to understand these storms better? Like, was this a basic curiosity or was the sense going into this that there might be something to learn um, about what's going on kind of more broadly from this specific phenomenon?
3: Yeah, I think it's a little bit of
2: both. You know, I think in
0: meteorology, you oftentimes have to observe a phenomenon before you can model it, before you can predict it. So on the one hand, there is a kind of local project to better observe these storms so that they can better model and predict them in the Cordoba region um, and open the predictive window for forecasts 24 or 48 hours. Um, 24 or 48 hours is a really big deal because these storms end up um, producing a lot of damage, killing people, flooding homes, flooding whole cities, uh, displacing thousands. and so if you can model the storms and open the predictive window, even just a few more hours and get people a, a little bit more warning, um, then you're going to save a lot of lives. You're also going to save a lot of infrastructure. You're going to save a lot of tax dollars. Um, the other part of doing that is that there are kind of fingerprints within these storms of maybe how storms more generally might be changing under the conditions of climate change. And so I think the scientists were focused both on a kind of local phenomenon and also on like what that local phenomenon could tell us more globally. You know, are is there more um, moisture in the atmosphere? And, and what is the presence of more moisture doing to storm formation and doing to storm movement? Um, there's more heat. Um, What is that heat doing to storm formation and storm movement, et cetera? I mean, a lot of those kinds of um, studies and deductions are a bit harder and take a lot more time because storms are incredibly complex. You know, the atmosphere is full of um, an incredible amount of variability and, it's difficult to attribute just one storm or just one part of a storm to climate change versus just some normal variability in the region or in the atmosphere. So the scientists were trying to look at both things and trying to tease out like, can we both help Argentinians on the ground? And can we also maybe tease out some of these um, more broad trends that are happening in storms to try to help storm forecasting and um, climate modeling moving forward, you know, because if we know that storms are forming uh, faster or larger or more violently, then that's also important data that you can plug into climate models so that when we spin those climate models forward 10, 50 years, we can account for those storms being faster, stronger, more violent, et cetera
2: which we find ourselves right now like just in the wake of one of you know it seems like every few months we get a new report from the un kind of climate um organization or or some you know group of scientists releasing a new report and each one is more dire than the last um Mm -hmm. and you know this week's most recent report um feels like again like a, a kind of stunning advancement in the sort of nature of the sirens that are being rung, right? Like the the flashing lights are brighter and the sirens are louder. Like, hey, something this is going to happen faster than we we ourselves thought it was going to happen. And a lot of their modeling mm-hmm. really did look at the end of this century, right? Like 80 years from now. Here, here are the things that are going. Here are the yeah. circumstances we're going to encounter um, by the year 2100 if we don't make some very, very, very radical changes. Um, how much do you stay on top of that stuff? Like, is is when that when that report drops? Are you like, is it like a dunk? Are you there in line to kind of pounce on the UN climate report and, and get the most recent figures? Like, what is your engagement with that sort of stuff right now?
0: Yeah, am I waiting on it like it's you choose Verso or something? Um, No, you know, honestly, I sort of read the drip coverage um, of climate change, but maybe not with the same eye that a daily climate change reporter might be reading it, because I'm oftentimes working on long form stories, or I'm thinking about like how to connect the dots on some, on some larger stories. So I'm like, for example, I haven't read that report. It came out a few days ago. Um, That's, that's both because it's super long and I just got back from a trip. Um, But I don't kind of immediately dig into that the way that some of my daily news colleagues do. So honestly, I'm, I'm a little ignorant sometimes when it comes to those kinds of projections um, because they're not oftentimes what i'm looking for when i'm looking for stories yeah um you know when i'm looking for stories particularly climate stories i'm oftentimes trying to think about a present tense angle i'm trying to think about a kind of human angle um and some of that is just a reaction to the fact that Climate change is very real and very present and its effects are already very human. And some of it is that like, you know, sometimes your eyes can just kind of glaze over when you read some of these reports and the projections are out at years that I can't begin to fathom. Um, and the, the picture that they're painting of the earth is also one that's sort of like difficult to fathom on some level, um, so I find that stuff kind of difficult to grasp and difficult to think about, except, you know, uh, in sheer panic or horror. Right. Um, and so like as an example, you know, uh, I wrote a story some years ago about groundwater depletion in Arizona, and that story came out of reading, uh, a a climate change statistic that was basically saying X number of groundwater wells are going dry in this rural area of Arizona. And I
1: thought like, oh, well.
3: (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um,
0: And I thought like, well, behind each of those wells is probably a pretty interesting and pretty tragic human story about like having um, such a vital resource just be suddenly gone at your own home. And like, what is the actual fallout from that? Does that mean that you have to move? Does it mean that you have to, you know, take out all the home loan that um, is potentially disruptive to your family's um, savings? Does it mean that you have to do, you know, I just wondered about like, well, all, what are all the little daily ramifications of having a, a well right. go dry? So, that's all to say, like, sometimes I'm not, I'm not reading that much about the kind of broad trends or the kind of predictions. Um, And, and what's interesting, you know, talking to some scientists and and sources lately is that the IPCC, which is um, the UN group that put together the report that Kyle was just referring to. Um, I think they're even beginning to change their tune on some of this stuff because they're realizing that um, climate change communication is a huge part of what they're doing, you know, not just producing this, the the science, but figuring out like, how do we get this to people? How do we get people to give a shit about it? Right, um, right, how do we move policy forward? Because um, all of the kind of maximalists and destructive predictions don't seem to be making anyone do anything about it at least on a kind of um, governmental level so i think you know a lot of scientists are starting to think in this mode like how do we how do we talk in a much more kind of present tense way about what's going on because you know maybe if we talk in a present tense way we can actually change some policy because policy leaders will be wanting to think about you know the ramifications of the storm that's going to happen two days from now not you know, the scorched earth future of 100 years from now, which is just hard to picture and hard to plan for.
3: I was going to ask, what, what do you think about the the inclination to just attribute everything from, like you said, resource depletion uh, to uh, natural disasters uh, under this umbrella of climate change?
0: Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, as I said earlier, attribution science when you talk to the scientists is actually really difficult to do really hard to say that x storm or um or depletion of x resource in you know this part of the sahel in africa is due to climate change and not just due to natural variability or due to um, about drought i mean i think if you zoom out and you say like well droughts are getting longer and they're more severe so the underlying conditions are due to climate change. I think oftentimes you can say that, but um, I do think that, that now there's a kind of knee jerk um, to automatically assume that every hurricane that hits is a, a climate change induced hurricane. Now it might be true that it made lands fall faster, or the winds were stronger due to some underlying conditions of climate change, but um, I think I think saying what I'm saying on some level has been a little bit of forbidden knowledge um, because I think that there's also a kind of rhetorical project to educate people on climate change, get people to realize the severity of it. And if we can um, get people to think about these storms as potentially getting larger and stronger and more violent due to climate change, then that's probably like a net win. Um, when like... Maybe if you tease out some of the science, like oh, maybe the wind speed was more variability, but the uh, the size of the storm was probably a marker of some climate change. You know, I'm not a scientist, so I'm just kind of like speculating right, right. here. But I do hear scientists sometimes say, like, well, like the science is a little trickier than that. Like, we can't we can't attribute everything all the time to climate change. And sometimes it takes a little longer to actually produce those storms. Um, But I do think it's usually fair to say that some of the underlying conditions, um, like let's say in that part of Southern Arizona that I was discussing, like Mm -hmm. there's less snowpack, there is less water getting to the valley floor and percolating into aquifers. The monsoons are perhaps more violent, but less frequent. Um, so you could say that all of those underlying things are attributable to climate change, but it'd be difficult to say like the monsoon on July 7th was monstrous because of climate change.
2: So if that makes sense, it does. And I think in that, what I, what I hear are, are a lot of the sort of, um, an encapsulation of a lot of kind of where we find ourselves right now, right? Like, because climate because climate itself is a conceptually incredibly tricky thing for us as individuals to wrap our head around. Right. I mean, this then presents the sort of window for people who have an interest in skepticism, like for instance, Jordan Peterson, or for instance, a great number of our lawmakers who are actually in charge of policy. Like the fact that there is this conceptual gap, for individuals and this kind of causal gap for scientists creates this great sort of plane for anyone who wants to or has any sort of vested financial or personal interest in denying climate change. Because there isn't a one-to-one relationship. Because what we're speaking of here is not a singular phenomenon, um, but actually this overarching series of uh, circumstances. It creates an incredible opportunity for skeptics like Ted Schmitz and and his cohort to pr- say, "Well, you can't you can't prove this, and so it must not be the case." Um, and so you know, well, there are a lot also, of yeah. Go ahead.
0: I was just going to say that an important. Part to recognize there is that a lot of that not just misinformation but a lot of the confusion or trying to complicate issues or trying to make it politically expedient not to immediately acknowledge climate change a lot of that is just you know funded and driven by the oil lobby and by the oil companies themselves who you know have moved have moved beyond have moved into a, a savvier um phase of propaganda and and have have stopped a lot of the denial and have moved more towards the like (laughs) well yes it's driven by humans but there isn't much that we can do about it or right you know these policies aren't that smart because they're gonna affect x y and z jobs or you know attacking the idea of renewables and how much power they can produce etc cetera um so, so i mean anymore it seems like there's not as much just outright denial and there's more like equivocating and like mealy mouthed bullshit yeah
1: and they have like nice commercials on youtube that like tell you what a great job they're doing <laughs> like look yes. at this chevron uh field it's like one acre of weeds like we made this yes. we're good right.
3: Yeah, let's talk a little bit about renewables, because it seems to me that there's, you know, two kinds of approaches that have developed as tools to combat climate change. Um, You know, on one side, you've got an emphasis on degrowth, right? Work less, consume less, fly less, dare we say skate more. Um, Mm -hmm. But then on the other side, you've got a a focus on sustainability and renewables. And we're going to consume the same amount, but in greener ways. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm working on um, a piece right now that deals with that. and and I was particularly interested in, as you said, this this kind of debate between degrowth and um, building green infrastructure because it's strange that it's sometimes framed as this kind of zero, some game like you that you either have to be degrowth you either have to yeah, you know, like not throw away me throw away exclusive. your plastic yeah yeah you have to throw away your plastic straws and you got to be like shopping at patagonia or whatever or on the other side of that is like you have to be pushing for a green new deal you have to be pushing for green infrastructure you have to be voting in the politicians who you think are going to decarbonize the economy i mean personally I like I don't think it's mutually exclusive I think that you can do bits of both and I think there are models around the world of different communities different countries that are doing um bits of both you know places where they might be uh, trying to change some of their consumptive habits you know one of the big parts of the American carbon footprint is just like the sheer amount of widgets and shit that we buy you know that's Produced in China, using a lot of carbon that's shipped over from China, using a lot of carbon that's then brought to American stores. You know, we use once or twice, and then we throw away or we move to another house and we buy it again at Target or whatever.
3: Yeah, but have you ever used the tail devil? Pretty, pretty fun.
0: I don't know what
1: that is. <laughs> they, they shoot sparks when you when you tail scrape on the ground.
0: Uh, is that what Ave used for his cover shoot of the uh, the bike rack?
1: No, that was Ooh. raw power. Ooh. Oh, Ooh.
2: And, and 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 is that bike rack naturally there
1: yes that's totally right no. yeah i hooked my christian my, was raising that question this morning on twitter he and i are no longer acquaintances friends uh he's been cut out uh and i'd advise you to walk uh you know the fine line here walk as we go forward we, yeah. we, we, so we didn't we didn't say was this
3: was the free thinker podcast for nothing <laughs> Yeah. No.
1: Yeah. I've heard double standards, but uh, Ava is a good skater and Steve Barra is annoying. So anyways. <laughs> we,
3: yeah. So we love widgets.
0: Yeah. So uh, what I was saying is that, you know, I, I think sometimes there's like a war, um, not a war, but just a, a kind of rhetorical battle within the left of like the proper way to address climate change. You know, is it like degrowth? Is it some personal responsibility on your traveling habits, your buying habits, you know, or is it a kind of um, infrastructural focus? Is it a kind of political focus on voting the right people in who can decarbonize the economy? Like, I don't, you know, I think we can do both things at once. You know, I can um, think about these political issues and vote for the politicians that I think are the most um, smart and forward thinking on it. While I also make a, you know, personal decision to travel a little less or to. Um, shop secondhand more or to use less electricity in my house. Um, You know, I think people would say, oh, well, that shit's just a drop in the bucket. But, you know, I don't, I think that stuff can change attitudes. And, um, you know, I'm reporting a piece on this right now, and I don't totally want to, like, dive too much into it. Um, But I think that those little habits um, and that like mindset shift can also be helpful um, for getting people to continue to vote perhaps for the right policies or, um, you know, that these things can catch on in different ways. I mean, I think oftentimes in American perspective, we think that all change should kind of like follow um, a mindset. But I think there are examples around the world where like the policy has changed and the mindset has kind of caught up after the fact where people have gone, Oh, our um, energy matrix has been decarbonized. We've become a leader in renewables. Like maybe we should also start recycling now Um, because they begin to have like, think of themselves as a country or a town as um, environmental or forward thinking on climate change. So that's all to say, like, I think that there are a lot of different ways that this, can work and I'm oftentimes thinking about these things a lot as a reporter and writer because oftentimes I have people like you or people in my family or people friends of mine who are like like is buying an electric car really a smart thing to do is buying you know what are the things I can do um and oftentimes I'm like I don't know man I'm I'm like figuring out a lot of that calculus (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, as I as I go along too.
3: Can you give us some examples of some countries, maybe particularly in the global South that have become leaders in this?
0: Yeah. So the, the piece that I'm working on is about the country of Uruguay, which ha- has had a um, pretty miraculous transition over the last decade and a half of being um, mostly dependent on foreign oil to being, I think, 98% um, renewables. So, I mean, they're an example wow. of that. Um, you know, and your it's a very small country, it's, you know, like the size of Chicago or something. Um, But I think it's an interesting example of um, policy shifting and policy shifting very quickly. I mean, there are other countries around the world that are doing a really good job, like most of the Scandinavian countries. Um, Iceland, you know, Iceland has um, geothermic power, so it may not be replicable for much of the rest of the world. Um, I think Kenya is doing very good things, also a country that has um geothermal. Um, but it's difficult, you know, like most people in the world live with a zero or a vanishingly small carbon footprint just by dint of extreme poverty or living in an extremely rural place. So there are a lot of countries in the world that you could say like, oh, well, they have no carbon footprint, but it's really because the people there aren't using a lot of electricity. They aren't using any um, gas in their day-to-day life. Um, so those countries aren't exactly um, an example of how like America might decarbonize, right? Because this is often wielded by the right as being an example of how like well if we decarbonize the economy we have to go back to some lesser um human development index or something which is also not true
3: like taking a train or something
0: (laughs) yeah like you know um god forbid that they can't drive you know a bigger and bigger truck each year i mean you guys seen some of these things lately i mean you live in arizona right
1: yeah for sure i I parked (laughs) cars during the evolution yeah (laughs) The front of them are like it's like eight feet tall. Right. Yeah, we we'd park a Tacoma next to an old Tundra, and it would just be bigger. You're like, that's the fucking midsize. Like, yeah, in ten years, and those old like,
0: Tacomas, that's like the plat- platonic ideal of a truck. Yeah, yeah, I mean, maybe that's maybe that's me as a Coloradan speaking. It's like,
1: yeah, but yeah, they they have gotten bigger, and like, and it, then there's like an arms race to protect the teenagers. You know, like, well. Like, are you gonna put your like shitty driving little kid in like you know a Civic, where all the yeah. other shitty driving little kids in Scottsdale are driving Forerunners and everything else? No, you're gonna put your put your kid in a big boy.
0: Yeah, I, w- I witnessed a version of this the other day when I was in line at the bank. God only knows why I was in line at an actual bank, but um, the guy who worked, maybe the guy, was it who worked there? Whatever, there was the guy who had just moved to Colorado and we had just gotten a ton of snow and it was super icy and he was discussing with some other guy about you know how to drive in the snow this or that he's like oh i guess i just like i got to get an f350 for my wife in case to drive." In. <laughs> he's like that's straight the only there. Way that <laughs> yeah that's yeah. the only way that they're going to stay safe is if they can just plow through all this shit <laughs> yeah it's like oh, all right it's one way to you know throw money at the problem i guess yeah. Or just learn how to drive in the snow.
3: Can you kind of help convey just the sheer level of consumption that Americans operate on as <laughs> compared to the rest of the world? Because it really feels like, you know, the world produces for us to consume and much of our economy is kind of propped up on that or the global economy rather.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, ha- I haven't looked at those numbers super closely, so I can't say anything in detail. I mean, I'll be looking at them soon um but any superlative that you want to use is basically right
1: yeah (laughs) i don't have answer for
2: you because (laughs) (laughs) because number one
1: yeah yeah exceptional consuming the most um (laughs) nice what else (laughs) what else did we win
0: (laughs) i don't know what to tell you otherwise uh, other than like it's it's surprising and shocking even when you look at other countries that have a similar human development index
2: so that that seems to Echo uh, what we were saying earlier that like one of the challenges here, and I hate to make this about purely about rhetoric or purely about language, but like one of the challenges here, but for the scientist, for the journalist, for the politician, for the podcaster, is like finding a way to actually convey in language the the nature of. The, the challenge facing us the phenomenons mm-hmm. we will we will encounter um and you know to get back to christian kerr like he <laughs> a, a, a year who plus has a ago great
0: nollie tray flip let's just put that on record oh a great skater great,
2: a, great Jesus, dude, a great a great i mean sorry great head of hair a great dude a great head of hair fucking Jesus. beautiful man it, uh, it hurts. and also a great writer who wrote a thing called i don't know if he came up with this um this headline, or if this was Village Psychic, um, also run by a great person, um, climate change—the ultimate skate stopper—which um, w- you know aims to, in you know f- fairly kind of uh, approachable terms, make the case for the skater to care. Like, hey, here's here's maybe here are five spots basically that are going to disappear. Due to climate change in the near future. And, you know, the, 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 the essential premise here is like, Hey, maybe you'll care about this. Like maybe by finding um, this sort of known, Um, threat object that we know you care about because you're a skater maybe we can make some sort of headway in terms of thinking about this thing that you know quite frankly we can't think about right like death Mm -hmm. we can't think about it and people philosophers have been addressing this since the beginning of time like kierkegaard has done great work to try to get us to come to peace with death and understand death so what what do you see as your role as the journalist in terms of like what can be done like what what are the sort of rhetorical steps that you and by virtue of you anyone else who finds themselves in a conversation like what what are the things that we can do in terms of talking about this undiscussable phenomenon like how Hmm. do we do this yeah I don't know man
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, well, I I think you know, getting back to your question or, or Ryan's question before about like just the the gross footprint of the average American life. I mean, I think some what I'm trying to do with this piece I'm reporting now is trying to actually like itemize that footprint and then itemize some of the other footprints around the world, just to look at you know, are, are there ways that the the average and very decadent American lifestyle can just be pared back in a certain way. You know, like it's, it's funny to go to another country and see how much people care about their daily electricity use, for example, you know, Mm -hmm. that uh, electricity is cheaper at night. So a lot of households do all their washing um, all their high electricity usage stuff at night. And they're like, well, that's not a big deal. Like, saves us a little money it's better for the grid etc but it's also something that like most americans would be like what like no i just wash my clothes when i need to yeah um and those are super small things in the scheme of things but um i think when they represent a kind of attitude shift of like becoming more aware about this either um because it has effects on your wallet or your um your family's budget like oh we can save a bunch of electricity by doing this stuff at night or by um, driving a little less or choosing to fly a little less um, there are a lot of different ways that you can speak to people I mean maybe to skaters it's to show them that like Embarcadero is going to be underwater or something I don't know um, maybe to other people uh, it's by showing them um you know, how much more, how much money they can save by driving a hybrid or something because they don't have to buy gas ever again, um, or electric car instead of a hybrid, excuse me. Um, I think that there are a lot of different ways you can reach people. So I wouldn't presume to know like the right rhetorical strategy. It's also not my job in a certain way. I mean, I think my job or the way that I see it right now is to try to, um, find stories about either the effects of climate change or in the case of the story I'm working on now, countries or people or communities that are thinking about how to adapt or how to um, fight climate change in like interesting or novel ways. Um, Oftentimes that stops kind of short of making prescriptions because it's not totally my job as a a writer or a journalist to say what people should be doing. and and i that sort of fits me both um dispositionally and also like um i wouldn't pretend to know how to advise the american government on how to decarbonize its entire economy because it's a massive massive fucking problem
3: Ah, they're doing a great job yeah they're just taking great (laughs) steps daily (laughs) yeah i'm looking at this article and i'm thinking about a venice park underwater maybe not so bad yeah fine (laughs) But then we wouldn't get all the like, like, you
0: know, kooky Instagram posts of fly outs. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I, I do. I do wonder how much like skateboarding can serve as this sort. Of, I mean, I guess I think this about everything, but I do wonder if skateboarding as a kind of example of um, a community or a sub community or a subculture um, that if 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 arguing, if sort of predictive models aren't going to change anyone's kind of grand idea, if like individual Mm -hmm. subjectivity remains the kind of, uh, and comfort and personal liberty remains, at least in this country, the the sort of dominant counterforce to any sort of measures that might offset our dire future. Like maybe there's a way that, communities like skateboarding or like dart leagues or you know weekly karaoke groups or whatever the thing might be um serve as a kind of model for like well let's talk about how this thing is going to be affected right like yeah we we despite you know flyouts aside like we want to see kevin bradley skate and that motherfucker only skates at the venice park so like (laughs) we sure we sure can't lose it because otherwise it's just him you know on instagram so like i don't know i don't know I, i i wonder about that i guess whether individual communities can serve as sort of hubs of oh here's a here's a way that we should care and maybe yeah things we could do
3: it's hard to talk yeah. about so so much about caring because so often it turns into this kind of smug moralizing, right? And then it's yeah. like people stake. Out I aside. just don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then it's like people stake out a side in the culture war, and then you know, at least in this country, it just feels like everything devolves into that, and then we're we're just cemented in our into our positions, right? Yeah, yeah
0: I wouldn't pretend to know how to make bridges between bubbles or communities, particularly in the like how bad things have gotten in the culture war now that everything seems to be made um, part of it. And we can't just kind of like talk about things on their own terms. Um, I mean, yeah, I would hope that every small community can, can talk about these issues and perhaps somebody in that community, you know, changes their behavior or makes an argument for changing other people's behaviors and other people follow suit. I mean, I like, I would hope that that's how it goes in terms of skating. <laughs> I don't know. It's not usually like, you know, what me and the boys are talking about when we're, um, <laughs> when we're out skating. Um, and, you know, usually just like, those reservoirs. Din- <laughs> I mean, I guess, you know, because of where I was living and because of the people I was skating with, you know, most of them uh, broadly agree with me on most political issues. So I don't right. know if I'm really like, pushing any um, social cultural barriers by like going out and skating with the boys. But right. um, yeah, I mean, the fact that like, you know, you guys have big group of listeners and skate Twitter exists as these communities. I mean, I think skateboarders have always kind of huddled up in groups and crews and um, you know, maybe there's a way that, that, that can foster some change or foster some communication. I mean, that seems more like, uh, your guys's jam than mine.
3: Yeah, I so. I gotta I gotta say the uh, the piece on the aquifers was incredible, and I've sent it to a lot of people. Everyone should read it. But there was such mm-hmm. a remarkable moment when these kind of homesteading libertarian types move out to the desert to you know escape, you know, and, and li- live in the wild west. Uh, suddenly, turn on their faucet, and there's there's dust coming out, <laughs> and then. You know, they, mm-hmm. they show up to their city council meeting for the first time in their lives. And they're, uh, you know, trying to band together to fight the corporate greed that's consuming all the aquifers is just, just amazing. And actually like kind of inspiring, you know, the come to Jesus moment that they're, they're facing.
0: The, the story that Ryan's talking about, I, I wrote some years ago and it's about a community in Southeastern Arizona that started seeing their aquifer go dry as a result of both underlying conditions of climate change are getting drier, the snowpack in the mountains, there getting less and less. Um, and then also corporate farms from California and also from around the world, Saudi Arabia, um, coming into areas where there was really lax groundwater regulation um, and basically just pumping the water out from underneath the people live there, people mind who live there.
3: Mind-blowing that they're pumping out water for cattle ranchers in Saudi Arabia.
0: <laughs> yeah, because the, the aquifers in Saudi Arabia have gone dry and Saudi Arabia can look around the world for cheap deposits of um, fossil water. And, you know, the government in Arizona, which is very pro-business, can say, well, these people are buying farmland and they're exporting crops. Um, so that's their right. And You know, Arizona is a fascinating example because on the one hand, it's this super conservative state. And on the other, when you start discussing water policy with people, like it doesn't cut tidily along um, partisan lines so often. You know, as Ryan was saying, this family that I spent time with, the Pops, who had lived in Pennsylvania and had saved up a little bit of a nest egg because they wanted to, you know, go live out their frontier dream and buy a little spread. Shortly after they did, their groundwater went dry. And I think the Pops would would describe themselves roughly as conservative, but um, they suddenly were aligned with people from all over the, the map ideologically because they had had this resource go dry and the resource going dry put them in this impossible position where their home was basically useless and worthless. Um, they couldn't live there because um, they didn't have water left. Um, they had equity in their home that was essentially worthless because they could never sell it to anyone because no one would buy a home that doesn't have water. So um, they were kind of home in effect, like homeless within their own home. And they had to um, start getting water um trucked in weekly in order to survive and then had to figure out, you know, the next place to move and then basically had to abandon their home after that. So I think, you know, bringing it kind of full circle, sometimes the severity of these issues, um, can get people to also change their mindset, you know, can bring them to community meetings as Ryan says, and suddenly start to care about, you know, how these resources get protected or don't get protected, you know, how, um, they should be studied or not studied by the government or by scientists. Um, So I would hope, you know, that that starts to lead to some change because there's just a plurality of people who start to give a shit about this and have skin in the game and want things to change. And I think Arizona is an interesting example of that because it's both happening and then there's nothing happening politically.
1: Yeah. I I've, kind of felt that way uh that arizona is a really good example where you do actually have a sort of interaction with how brutal uh earth can be just on its own terms um which mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of people you know that's well, you know in california it's quite if you live on the coast it's quite the same all the time you don't know, ever but in arizona you know it's like yeah you die if you go you know if you stand outside too long without water it's kind of crazy it happens I have a a question that's uh, not about Arizona, which is rare, but is skateboarding and and the consumption we do for it actually as bad as it kind of seems looking at it? Because I was talking to somebody about uh, NFTs because like, you know, I'm big on OpenSea. And uh, but I was just like, dude, you know (laughs) what sucks about almost everything is the idea that like we are going to buy it and we buy it with the idea that like it's going to like accrue value. And then once we realize that, then we say how much it rules, but Mm -hmm. there's few things that we actually go, Oh, I'm going to buy this thing. And the second after I buy it, it's going to be worth less than garbage. Like Mm -hmm. I'm going to go spend $65 on a real board. And then now that I've put my stickers and my, did my tricks on it, it's literally garbage. Like it's a piece of trash and it's my favorite thing. And it's, you know, and so I feel like something about the consumptive nature of skateboarding and the activity of skating is like kind of brings it a lot of meaning because it's like in conflict with a lot of the other interests that people kind of say like people, often people will be like, Oh, I like to play golf. I, I make all these great network connections or there's some other reason, you know, and mm-hmm. skateboarding kind of rules on its own terms, but it is very, Yeah, we have to consume to do it. The boards are shrink wrap. They're made out of who knows, it's impossible to tell what skateboards are made out of, but they're made out of something—Mexican maple
0: good. or something. I was just gonna say one of the reasons that I'm such a shitty skater is that I'm an environmentalist. I don't like to run through <laughs> boards or wheels quickly.
3: Remember bulletproof skateboards from back in the day? <laughs> no, no, they were like uh, titanium skateboards that they advertised oh, in Transworld or something. Uh, but yeah, it was an indestructible skateboard. All right, I have one yeah. last go ahead sorry
0: no i was gonna say i feel like there was a moment in like maybe the early 2000s or something where a couple of board companies i feel like element definitely tried to like make boards where the middle ply was metal or something
3: mm-hmm.
1: yeah they kind of have those at santa cruz but like element is in that like one percent for the planet pact like whatever the fuck that mm-hmm. means and
0: so Nigel's given one percent to the planet. oh no he's not a no element disorder
1: is uh just just as raw as it comes but yeah like is it like i don't know if there's enough skaters to actually make that big of a dent or whatever maybe that's the fallacy that's at the heart of a lot of the thinking around climate change but like is is skateboarding by using wood and and all these other like horrible chemical materials for urethane and and you know like is it as as kind of shitty and and bad as it kind of looks intuitively
0: Without having looked at the actual footprint of, of the industry, I mean, I I couldn't really say. Um,
1: All right, so it's not, it's good. All right, we're neutral. Good, <laughs> good, good, good to know.
3: I, I had I had one last did our own though. research. Uh, yeah, did your own research. Yeah, <laughs> carbon offsets. Com- companies buying carbon offsets is that bullshit?
0: I don't know. I mean, it seems like some of them are. It seems like um, there are other tools that seem. Uh, like they're better. I mean, I think that there are a lot of different kinds of carbon offsets, right? Like some say that they're offsetting carbon by whatever, buying up tracts of um, forest in Vietnam or in Brazil or something. Um, I don't know how a lot of them work. So I honestly couldn't say bullshit or otherwise. I mean, what? <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I'm answering a lot of your guys' questions with being like, I don't know, man. Um, and some of that speaks to like, kyle's intro about climate change and that the the issue is so huge that oftentimes i don't even think of myself as a kind of climate change reporter so much as i'm like oftentimes interested in the the stories or issues that are um being affected by climate change so sometimes you know i i'm looking at storm genesis and and climate change modeling for months. And then other times I'm looking at groundwater and um, how aquifers are affected by declining snowmelt. But there are so many other places within climate change that I'm just uh, totally ignorant, carbon offsets being one of them. Um, So that's, I mean, that's one reason why my work continues to interest me because oftentimes with each story I get to kind of relearn um, or learn a new Um, Some small discipline that has um, parts of its science dealing with climate change, but isn't necessarily um, a part of climate change, like writ large that wasn't the most articulate answer, but um...
2: no, I I mean, I think, I think one of the things we've seen or heard here today is that there, there remain very large gaps and there remain very real limitations in the way that any human brain can um, address something as Mm -hmm. hyper objective as climate change. Um, But we are Noah, just extremely grateful for your time and for coming on here and talking to us and, our our thousands of listeners um about a topic that i think um everyone can benefit from thinking about from new angles certainly Mm -hmm. uh our last our last uh trick our last vent city trick challenge um was a kickflip front board slide um ted schmitz of course cannot do that trick Um, kyle beachy can though kyle beachy can with a little (laughs) bit of wheel squeak uh chris nebling can Chris and Ebling sure can man to fakie even if, Ooh. if, if circumstances demand such a thing, do you have any input on what our next vent city trick challenge should be anali for the sake of sustainability and wearing out our nose at the same rate that we wear out our <laughs> tail?
1: Like when you're a little kid and you're like, mm. I got to start skating switch because like my shoes going <laughs> bad too fast.
2: Uh, so how
0: does this work? Is, is it like, uh, a trick that I'm working on that I want to like, you know, get yeah, you'd some like help to do and you'd like crowdsource help.
2: To yeah. You might want to do it. You might want to see other people do it. You might um, want to stretch. You might want to fall back on an old class.
3: Don't say nolly bigsman backtail, please. <laughs> the apple yard special. No. On a um, giant quarter pipe.
0: <laughs> yeah. On a giant quarter pipe <laughs> wearing, wearing capris, just a beautiful, <laughs> just a beautiful skater back, nose, grime, back, Ooh, oh, like back nose grind back 180 oh that's a great
3: trick back nose
2: grind back 180 no you're we speaking that one? my language my dude no it's perfect No, you're <laughs> you are right in our wheelhouse in honor of uh zach allen's back nose grind back 180 that opens his part in the baker video surely it's called-
0: I, I stopped after reynolds i was so stoked <laughs> i just didn't go any further i didn't want it to get ruined you didn't want to get
2: ruined. Hey, oh, Hey-o. Uh, <laughs> that's what I'm here for, <laughs> I think we did it. That's I think Ted just for. did it for us. Uh, thank you everyone. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you to Noah. Please uh, check out his work. Um, though, I don't know, you know, the New York times has a lot of readers. You're not going to put, put any pennies in his pocket actually. Uh, but, mm-hmm. uh, we're happy to have you, man. Thanks very much for coming through.
3: Yeah. Thanks for having me on here.
0: Appreciate you guys.
1: Thank you very much to everyone for listening. Our intro music is by the band Roar. Our credits music, as always, is by Dylan Bryan, who congratulations on making your GoFundMe goal for some new gear. Look out for new music from Dylan, coming soon. And our logo and graphic design, as always, is by Michael Warfel. Gotta thank the kind people on our ProFlow Patreon tier. That's Andy Yamazaki, Lauren Romero, Sean Doyle, Lars Garvey Lang-Peterson, Cameron Jimmo and Betsy Gordon we love you all shit I fucked that up I try to make it so like you know everything I say kind of like fits into the track and then like I stop talking and then it's like and then there's like the maybe I can fix it